Excited Utterance, the Evidence and Proof Podcast, Episode 132, David Caudill, Expertise in Crisis. Welcome to Excited Utterance. I'm your host, Ed Chang from Vanderbilt Law School. Excited Utterance is your podcast for cutting-edge scholarship and developments in the world of evidence. We bring virtual workshops to you throughout the academic year. This week, our guest is Dave Caudill. Dave is the Arthur M. Goldberg Family Chair in Law at Villanova University, where he teaches evidence and property. His research has long focused on expert evidence and the relationship between science and the law. Our podcast today features Dave's new book, Expertise in Crisis, the Ideological Contours of Public Science Controversies, which was published by Bristol University Press. In it, Dave takes on what has become known as the crisis of expertise, the well-known modern phenomenon in which laypersons refuse to defer to expert conclusions or judgments. Classic examples include climate change, childhood vaccines, and genetically modified foods. And more recent and perhaps more salient examples from the pandemic include the effectiveness of mask wearing and the safety and efficacy of COVID-19 vaccines. David argues that part of the crisis of expertise is actually due to the fault of the scientists themselves. When science takes an overly strident tone, one that oversells its certainty and objectivity, Dave argues that science, in effect, closes the communication lines with doubters and detractors. The result is political polarization on factual issues and a situation in which truth is as much about belief as it is about empirical reality. My conversation with Dave explores these issues pushes on the limits of his thesis, and asks whether there's any way out of the crisis of expertise. Dave, delighted to have you on Excited Utterance. Welcome. Nice to be here, Ed. Thanks so much for inviting me to do this. So you've written this really interesting book about the crisis of expertise, and I'd like to start with a contrast. So these days, I think everyone is familiar with the crisis of expertise on things like climate change and vaccines and the like. Laypersons basically don't always defer to scientific consensus, and instead they decide on their own, even though they might lack expertise. But one interesting thing to me is that you've been thinking about these issues for a very long time. So I'm curious what got you started on this topic. Yeah, I was just thinking we could go back to my grad school years when I was studying history and philosophy of science, and I got interested in sociology of science, and particularly interested in the idea that science is not absolute truth, that science is tentative and it's provisional, and it's a very social affair. It, it's a very subjective affair. It's not always objective. And so I probably was involved in that, in the science wars, 
way back in the end of the 20th century, and arguments between people who had total, complete faith in science, and then those of us who said science is actually not absolute and it can be questioned. And anyway, that debate goes on. Then I become a law professor, and I remember when Daubert came out, and I was like, ah, I'm ready for this one. The whole debate about science and the nature of science and the nature of expertise in the courtroom. And so I very much got excited about that and wrote some things on that and wrote a book on Daubert. And so I've been thinking about expertise all along. And so whenever the pandemic started, that was when all of a sudden another issue came up of why is it that people distrust science and why is it that people don't follow consensus science? And as you know, by that time, I've gotten very much involved with the Cardiff School of Expertise, a bunch of sociologists of science at Cardiff University in Wales, who have made it a project over the last eight or 10 years to study expertise and the nature of expertise. So, I mean, all of those sort of came together during the pandemic. And I thought, yeah, this is something I want to think about, particularly, like you said, you don't need to write a book that says there's a crisis. You don't need to write a book that says people don't trust consensus science. But what can we do about it and how can we solve it? And that sort of was the motivation for the book. How do you think we got to where we are today? In some ways, I think this might be looking at the past with a bit of rose-colored glasses. But I think the conventional wisdom is that post-World War II, there was something of a golden era for consensus science. People had faith in science. They liked the scientific community and what the scientific community was doing. And expertise was effectively deferred to during that period. How do you think we got from there to this incredibly politicized and polarized world, even with respect to scientific issues that we have today? Yeah, well, you hit it when you said politicized. So first of all, the idea of the culture wars, the idea of people just dividing themselves into two groups and literally hating the other side and demonizing the other side. People have talked about the pandemic and the Trump years as being this unique time in history when all of a sudden people are tremendously polarized. That actually is not new. And you can find articles written on the polarization of the United States between left and right, between Republican and Democrat. I mean, that was true in the Clinton years. That's true in the early 21st century. That's true that that idea that we live in two different worlds, the idea that left and right live, just see reality differently. And they have such different values that they can't agree on anything. So I don't think that part of it is new. And so it's been that way for a while. But whenever the pandemic starts and you start politicizing things like mask wearing and vaccines and, like you said, climate change, now all of a sudden these arguments, these scientific arguments are very connected with one's politics so that you can actually predict somebody's views on climate change or on vaccines or on mask wearing solely based on their political position. So there does seem to be that politicization that's an explanation of the crisis of expertise. And I always say the broader culture wars, that's not what my book is about. The fact that people are divided about whether Biden won the election and all of that sort of thing. But the crisis of expertise is definitely a part of that. It shares in the same divisions. So in a way, I think one of the goals of your book is to encourage scientists to 
lower the volume, so to speak, in these debates about science. You're encouraging scientists to be a bit less strident. You sort of talk about this idea of because science, which is a popular thing to put on t-shirts, and you're suggesting that that may not be such a productive activity. Tell us more about that idea. Yeah, and it was the t-shirt that said, trust science, not morons, that made me think that the way to understand the other side, the way to persuade the other side, the way to communicate with the other side is certainly to get away from that demonization. And I will say one thing that gave me the idea of this is holiday parties with relatives who live in a different world than I do, relatives who I love, relatives who I need to understand, and I cannot just reject them and never talk to them again. So it's this idea of when you put it in the context of science, if a scientist just says, well, you're being utterly ridiculous. I've made the argument in the book that both sides in the crisis of expertise, both left and right, both those who believe in consensus science and maybe those who believe in some fringe science views, both of them are believers. Both of them are ideological. Both of them come from communities with a set of beliefs and a particular language and a way of looking at that. Now, I have to tell you, I just saw this week the fancy fall issue. It's a special issue of Scientific American called Truth Versus Lies. Now, Scientific American, I mean, that's mainstream science. That's going to be scientists who are orthodox in their beliefs. It is about the fact that we all see things differently and that you construct the world. You don't approach the world and see it as it is. You approach the world and see it as you are. That's the way that issue starts. And it's trying to explain the fact that people seem to see things differently. People seem to assess things differently in science. I will say that by the end of that special issue, I don't think they really believe in what they're saying because all of the examples of people who are wrong and all are on the right and all of the examples of people who are wrong are people who don't believe in consensus science. And there doesn't seem to be any real understanding that both sides have this quasi-religious set of beliefs. So what I do in the book is I make an analogy with the Protestant Reformation. That's a really good example of a divided society, polarization, both sides demonizing the other, and no seeming communication between the two. And then I look at Wittgenstein's idea of life forms, of the idea that maybe people have different worldviews. And he was actually optimistic that you could occupy somebody else's worldview, that you could understand somebody. He, I mean, Wittgenstein actually gave the example of somebody who thinks the earth is 5,000 years old. That person in Wittgenstein's eyes is wrong. And yet, what you have to do is try to figure out how that person got to that. Where did they get that bad data that made them think that? And you can, without joining their set of beliefs, you can occupy their set of beliefs. And so it's that idea of when you said scientists should be more modest. Yeah, scientists should realize that what they have is very useful models and very good predictions. And they have a consensus in each field of science of people who believe certain things. But just this morning, the 20 major retractions of science in 2022 came out. That means there's 20 things that we thought last year that were true are not true. 
and whether based on fraud or bad data or something. And so it's that level of modesty that I'm talking about. So it seems to me, though, that you have a little bit of a line drawing problem here. So I can see how a scientific debate, maybe one of the cases of retraction that you're talking about, maybe one of these ongoing controversies about the toxicity of a particular substance. I think those are scientific debates that produce majority and minority opinions and which side that you adhere to may be a matter of faith in some way. And in other words, there's too much uncertainty for you to just rely on evidence. And so a lot of it has to do with one's priors. But you need to also separate some of the other stuff. So astrology, things that are not empirically based, physicians that are effectively manufactured by economic or political interests, do scientists or do any of us really need to accord those positions the same kind of respect? And the example I think I would suggest is you know, if you think about ivermectin and you think about ivermectin at the very beginning of the pandemic where everyone was scrambling and trying to figure out what kinds of existing drugs might be helpful with COVID versus ivermectin, say, a year into the pandemic or today, where the consensus is extremely strong and anyone who continues to think favorably of ivermectin as a COVID drug is truly fringe and is grinding on one side of this debate or, or pursuing a much more ideological line. Right. That's a great example, the one you just gave, because that's right on the line between I would make the division that you made in your examples. My book is not about controversies that really don't have to do with science at all. I'm talking about scientific controversies. I'm talking about fringe science versus consensus science, where people are arguing about what the data shows. In other words, they're not rejecting science. They're not rejecting science as an institution. In fact, both sides are claiming scientific evidence. So climate change, the people who doubt climate change on the basis of their own data, we might say that that data is not very good, but they're trying to make a data type argument. They're still within the realm of science. I agree with you, or I don't know if you were making that point, that I'm not talking about astrology. I'm not talking about somebody who's not scientifically based controversies. The idea that Biden is a shape-shifting lizard, that if there's a controversy about that, it has nothing to do with my book. I don't know what to do with that. The idea that there are some controversies that are just completely not based on science at all. So I don't think you need to accord them any respect. And that's not what I'm talking about when I say we need to occupy their worldview. We need to look into why they think the way they do. I am referring in those cases to scientific disputes. It strikes me that you're trying to hold a tricky middle ground between idealization of science, which was, if I remember correctly, the subtitle of your previous book, idealizing science into some kind of objective, absolute truth, and one which is completely reductionist into this idea that it's all completely socially constructed, that it has empirical reality, but it also has its limitations that we have to actually acknowledge. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, I am. I'm trying to occupy that middle ground. I studied the sociology of science. I was engaged in it. And when I wrote the book on the idealization of science, I mean, I think I said, 
the science is much more socially constructed than the mainstream scientists will admit. Science's self-image as an objective affair, I think, is challenged very well by those sociologists who point out that science is very social, that it's very cultural, that it's got all sorts of values. And I don't just mean values about truth and honesty. It, it, people that engage in science, their biases get into their results. And so I do think that it has to do with the limitations of language and the effect of the economy on science and what we think is important to study and what we don't. So I think I was very much into the fact that science is a social affair. Now, you're right. People go too far with that and say that shows that science is socially constructed. That means that the view that there is no climate change is as valid as the view that there is climate change because both of them are socially, culturally created positions. That's where I disagree. And I say, no, even though science is not perfect, even though science is a social affair, it has proven to be something that is worthy of our respect. It has proven to be something that we can live on the basis of, even though it's not 100% right, even though constantly we change things and revise things and refute things, nevertheless. And yes, I think holding those two things together, and my example of that in the book, and it is Bruno Latour, who just recently passed away this year, great French sociologist of science, who, I mean, in many ways started the idea that science is socially constructed. When he went to the laboratory in San Diego and studied the way scientists actually operate, he was proving that science is highly social, very much a community affair, very much affected by credibility and who you listen to and who you don't listen to, and showed how social it was. But if you take that position too far, you're not able to critique anything. You're not able to come out against, uh, you know, uh, views against climate change. You can't do anything. And by the way, Latour spent the last few years of his life arguing because of the Trump administration that it's very dangerous not to recognize climate change. So he's a good example of somebody who's holding both of them together. I'd say also Harry Collins in Wales is also saying, yes, science is a social affair. Yes, it's limited. Yes, it has mistakes. Yes, it has models that are not 100% pure, but we should respect it and live on the basis of it. Before we end, let me get to some payoffs. What do you think we should do about communicating science in light of your views about modesty and humility in communicating science? What do you think we should do when we're communicating these ideas in the courtroom, perhaps in public debates? Yeah. When I think about this book, I mean, this book was not directed toward evidence and expertise in the courtroom. I was really talking about public scientific controversies like we saw during the pandemic. What does it do to my views as an evidence professor regarding admissibility of scientific evidence in the courtroom? Two things. First of all, I think consensus science is what we should be aiming for. And it may be no surprise to your listeners that you have been working on articles and, and a book about the need to follow consensus science. And perhaps we ought to be following consensus science in the courtroom instead of making decisions on the basis of which scientist you like 
we should be making decisions on the basis of who's following consensus. I actually agree with that, and I think that could be an important improvement, and that relates to the confidence in consensus science that I have in my book. Again, is it perfect? No. Is it 100% true? No. But it's the best science we have, and we ought to be following it in the courtroom. It would solve some of the dilemmas that we got into post-Daubert about how should we judge expertise? And I think judging it on the basis of consensus science is a good standard. But it also made me start thinking about juries and this whole idea that there's a sizable amount of the population that doesn't trust consensus science. That made me think, Ed, that if we do have a consensus science standard, is the jury going to believe it? Is the judge going to trust science? You know, what is their politics and where did they come from to be on the jury or to be in the judiciary? And are they going to reject consensus science, which I think is a real concern. So those were just my thoughts about the courtroom. I did, in writing the book, read a lot about science communication, and I read a lot of scholars who read the work of a lot of scholars who talk about how best to communicate to the public. And I think everybody agrees with me that there needs to be a certain level of modesty. But I still do believe in an elite. I do not believe in the democratization of science. I don't believe that we should let everybody participate in scientific decision-making. We've talked before about this idea of sometimes comes from the European Union that a science panel should have some ordinary citizens on it because we don't want elites running things. We want to have everybody participating. I don't agree with that. I don't think everybody should participate. I think I don't want anybody making scientific decisions unless they're trained experts. And so when some of these science communication people start talking and they say, well, the way to deal with a person who doesn't believe in consensus science is to let them in on the decision making, let them have a part in decision. And I'm thinking, no, that's not what I want. So I don't have a problem with technocrats and I don't have a problem with elites when it comes to scientific decision making. Final question for you. What's next for you? Where does your research on these issues go from here? Well, I got very interested in consensus science in writing this book. And the, like I said, the, the idea that, that that's what we ought to be following. And you, in your work, some of your listeners may know, have written an, an article or two and working on a book on the idea of could we have consensus science as a standard in the courtroom? Could we, instead of saying, uh, instead of using the Daubert standards and making judgments about which expert is mostly following general acceptance and which one has the best error rate and that sort of thing, and which one has the most publications, maybe we ought to be making decisions in the courtroom based on consensus science. So you've made that proposal. It's been done. We did a symposium at Villanova about that proposal. But we're not done with that one. I think we're just starting the questions that follow from that proposal. And I think we're ready to start looking at some specific examples. So what I would like to do, Ed, is I'd like to think about some particular controversies in the courtroom that have happened, where there are cases where people have, where experts have differed and presented opposing views, and try to find out which ones of those controversies would be solved by following consensus science. What happens, and I know you're very familiar with this problem, if there is no consensus, 
then what's the solution? Do we go back to Daubert? What do we do? So I feel like I'm just starting to think about the courtroom. And I've done this book on public science controversies. And now I do want to turn to the courtroom as an evidence professor. And I do want to give some serious thought to your proposal for consensus science. I think it's a good idea. And I want to see how it works out. And I know you're going to be working on that. And I'm going to be working on that in the next year. Well, it's uh, very flattering and encouraging at the same time. So thank you. So Dave, thanks for coming on the show to talk about one of, or if not the favorite topic of mine, the crisis in expertise. Great having you on the show. Okay. Well, thank you so much again for inviting me and I'll see you around. In his book and in the interview, you can see Dave trying to hold some tricky middle ground. On the one hand, Science is an institution and a methodology that's deserving of our trust and deference. Scientists have expertise, and many of the benefits and marvels of modern life are due to scientific techniques and advances. Rejecting consensus science on the basis of lay understandings or fringe positions is thus highly unlikely to be a successful long-term strategy. On the other hand, science at times can be arrogant, it can be heavy-handed, and it can fail to recognize its own limitations, both in terms of uncertainty and its inability to resolve clashes over values. Cutting-edge science is messy, and while consensus science may be owed our deference, it should not oversell itself. That road only leads to mistrust. In addition, overselling or converting belief in science into an ideology serves no one. T-shirts saying, because science, are part of the problem, not part of the solution. As Dave alluded to during the interview, and many of you know, deference to consensus science is an idea that I hold near and dear to my own heart. In some recent articles and in a current book project, I try to re-envision the expert admissibility rules through a deference approach. To my mind, Daubert is wrong because it asks laypersons to make independent judgments about expert topics. And in fact, the entire structure of expert evidence is wrong because it focuses on an individual expert's opinion. Far better would be to defer to expert consensus or some kind of constructed expert consensus. But alas, those ideas are for another time. In the meantime, I urge all of you to pick up Dave's new book. The topic is obviously timely. The book is a quick and enjoyable read, and his ideas will make you think hard about science and its relationship to law and policy. Support for Excited Utterance is generously provided by Vanderbilt Law School's Brandstetter Litigation and Dispute Resolution Program, as well as the University of Arkansas School of Law. The associate producer is Alex Nunn, and the production editor is Madeline DiPietro. Additional production assistance is provided by Kyra Hammond, and the music is provided by the Vanderbilt University Blair School of Music's Children's Cello Choir under the direction of Kirsten Castle Greer. I'm your host, Ed Chang, and I hope you'll join us again next time 
when we take on another new work in the world of evidence and proof.